we're looking at the Christ hymn in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Now, I'm only going to do half of the Christ hymn today, and we're going to do the other half of the Christ hymn next week. There's so much in it. So starting in verse 15, let's read it together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Have a seat. Lord, thank you so much for today. I pray that you would give us um, wisdom, uh, that we would be able to look into your word, uh, that we would understand the goodness of who you are by seeing your word. Thank you so much for giving us your word. Um, you definitely didn't have to uh, give us your word so that we could know you, but you did out of unbelievable kindness. And so I pray that as we look into your word this morning, Lord, that you would grant to us uh, a, a great measure of understanding of, of Christ and not just who he is, but what he's done for us and that we would seek to know Christ uh, not just in a, in a way that, that's knowledge only, but even more so that we can have our hearts um, moved and awestruck by who Jesus is. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So just as a, a little, little intro, I did this last week, but if you weren't here just to let you know what's going on uh, and how Colossians came about, and then we'll jump into the Christ hymn. So um, Paul, Paul wrote this letter uh, of Colossians, and he was not the church planter. We know that from Colossians 1.7 that Epaphras was the church planter. And if you remember when we we're going through the book of Acts, I talked about how Paul went to Ephesus, and when he went to Ephesus, um, he would rent out the hall of Tyrannus, and as he was renting it out, he would um, work during the day and then work... Uh, go to the hall of Tyrannus and, and would preach the gospel for three years. He would pay his own money, and as he would do that, um, people would come to know Christ, and likely during this three-year period while he was there, at some point, uh, likely, Epaphras came up and heard the gospel and then eventually became a part of Paul's missionary team, and whenever uh, he, he got saved, Epaphras decided to go back to where he was from. We know that he was from Colossae. It tells us, tells us that in chapter 4 verse 12 where he says that he's one of you and so he went back to uh, Colossae and he shared the gospel not just with Colossae but probably even with Laodicea and Hierapolis these kind of three cities there um, and then as he shared the gospel they they grew in their understanding some people came in after the gospel was shared they had some heretical ideas uh, Epaphras heard about this went to Paul, this is about five years later, went to Paul, told Paul all of the things that are going on uh, and said, hey, there's some problems theologically that's going on. Paul writes this letter that we have, gives it to Tychicus, and Tychicus takes the letter back to the Colossian church. And uh, Paul's goal in writing this is to correct some of those wrong thoughts that they have about it. The first half uh, is 
similar to Ephesians in, in, in form, where the first half is doctrine, the second half is application. Very similar to that. Um, and likely, as I said last week, uh, Paul is addressing Gentile converts in this particular letter as he's writing. So um, the main thing that he's wanting them to, wanting to do is to, to uh, address the heresies that the Colossians had. It was a bit deceptive. We'll talk about a little bit of that today. Um, they said that Christ's work was <clears throat> uh, necessary for their salvation, but it wasn't sufficient, and therefore they needed to do more. If Once you trust in Christ, you need to do more, not like uh, the Galatian letter where you need to start following Jewish law, but now you need to do more like asceticism, uh, having visions, practicing festivals, doing these other things is what really is going to draw you in and help you understand who Christ is so that you can truly be saved. Um, that's... And, of course, Paul doesn't agree with that. That's not the gospel. And so he wants to address those things. Now, um, we're going into the Christ hymn. And so before we go into the Christ hymn, I want to read something from the book of Ephesians. uh, Because the Christ hymn, the goal of the Christ hymn today is for you to be awestruck with who Jesus is. As you look at this week and next week, um, and we're just looking at the attributes of Christ, you'll find that there's not a lot of this. This happens. There's not a lot of application. Here's what you should do, though I will probably intersperse some application through this, but most of the application will be, wow, look at Christ. You should be awestruck on who he is. And you're like, okay, but how do I do that? And you just have to be moved by the Holy Spirit to see and understand who Christ is at even greater levels and that you would be, um, you'd be awestruck by that. But let me, let, me, let me read something from Ephesians to make sure that we still understand what the goal is because the goal is not just pure information. So here's what uh, I'm picking up in the middle of this prayer for the Ephesians. But uh, he's saying that I want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith, that you can be rooted and grounded in love. You may have strength Here it is, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And here it is, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So today you're going to hear some things about Christ, attributes that are going to give you a knowledge of who Christ is. But the goal of just knowing who Christ is, while it's very good, uh, is not the end-all, be-all goal of a, of a sermon on the Christ hymn. But instead, as you hear it, it's so that when you hear information about Christ, that you would know and comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. And then it says, and when you do that, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So it's not just a goal of a Christ hymn sermon that you know things about Christ, but instead the goal is that you know um, surpassing knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the goal today is that we would all be filled with all the fullness of God. So um, as we look at this and we're beckoned by the Holy Spirit to be awestruck on who Christ is, the end goal is wonder and awe and worship so that our lives would look different as we walk out of here this afternoon. Our lives would look different as we live our lives Monday through Saturday, uh, and that we wouldn't have um, we wouldn't have uh, a, a look like just like the rest of the world because we know things about Christ that are amazing. So 
Uh, we are just going to do, as I said, verses 15 through 17 today, and the next week we'll do verses 18 through 20, and that's because there's so many things to point out in the Christ hymn. So uh, the first half of the Christ hymn is what we're looking at today. Uh, and so in these, in these attributes that we're going to look at in 15 through 17, there is a bit of a, of a title. So you can go ahead and go one more. Go one more. So in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see that Christ is the mediator of all creation. Christ is the mediator of all creation. Next week, in 18 through 20, we're going to see that Christ is the Lord over God's church. And there'll be several attributes that highlight that for us. But in, in the first half of the Christ hymn, we're going to see, in a big picture sense, that Christ is the mediator over all creation. Christ is the mediator of all creation. And, and inside that, we're going to see six different attributes that show us why Christ is the mediator of all creation. But the whole big picture is all the attributes of Christ. Um, now, this is called the Christ hymn, but it's not made like a contemporary hymn. Obviously, you've noticed that uh, in the first century, this idea of the hymn is more like a creed uh, of what we would look like today. The point and the goal would be to teach doctrine, but not in and of itself, right? The point of of, of, the, of a creed is not just to teach doctrine, but it's also doxological. It's meant to draw you to worship Christ. As you know more, it's meant to make you want to worship. And so Paul's employing this hymn right here in the very beginning of the Colossian uh, letter on purpose. He's employing it right here, of course, because he wants to teach the Colossians Christology. He wants, them to teach, he wants to teach them about who Christ is. But further, he wants them to know Christ so that he can correct the distortions of the heretics that have come in and said wrong things about Christ. We'll, we'll show some of those today. Um, one theologian, great theologian, his name's Chris Miller, he points out that Paul has described for us in verses 13 and 14 the amazing deliverance and redemption that we have in Christ. As we see, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so this, this theologian Chris Miller has said, he's shown us this amazing redemption we have in Christ. Now, let me introduce you more fully to who Christ is in verses 15 through 20. Um, and that's what he's doing for us. So uh, you can easily guess the six points, right? Each verse has two points. And the first half of the verse 15 is point one. The second half of verse 15 is point two. The first half of verse 16 is point three, on and on. I mean, it's almost verbatim, but I'll explain them a little bit more. So he is the image of the invisible God. There's number one. Put it up. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So let's talk about what that means. Um, image or uh, in the Greek, icon, icon. And so uh, it's where the word, our little word icon means, where we talk about drawing pictures, etc. And so this word can also mean likeness. This image means likeness. Jesus is the absolute perfect image of God. He didn't become this image at the incarnation. He didn't come this image um, at some point in time uh, after things got started. He's always been this image. There's never been a time where he hasn't been this image, but he has been this from all of eternity. Now, when we hear this, Garland says, when we hear image, think about what, what we're saying here. He's the image of the invisible God. If things are invisible, how do they have images? And if he's just an image, is he just like a copy? So therefore, we, you know, when you put something in the, in the copy machine and you make a copy, the original is the original, and this other thing is almost like it but not quite as good is that what we mean when we say image he's garland says this may sound strange to us how can something invisible have an image and for, more so in greek philosophy um 
whenever you have this idea of, well, before we get to Greek philosophy, an image is also not considered uh, something like the exact same thing in our minds. It's like a facsimile or a reproduction. But in Greek thought, whenever he, he employs this word icon, image, it's not to be thought of as like a, a copy, like a copy machine or a facsimile. In Greek philosophy, however, the image has a share in the actual reality that it reveals, and it may even said to be the actual reality. An image is not considered something distinct from what it was representing. Instead, as the image of God, Christ then, and this is what Paul's trying to use when he uses the word icon, Christ then is the exact image of God, visible representation of God and illuminating the very essence of God of who, who he was to the people. Calvin says this term image has a reference for Christ, but it calls him the image of God on this ground that he makes God in a manner visible to us. And so when he is the image of the invisible God, he's not a copy of God, half kind of representing who God is. He literally represents the very essence of who God is. So since he's the essential word of God, as he says in John 1, 1, um, he is fully and truly represents God and is God. He's the image of the invisible God. Therefore, he is God. That's who Christ is. O'Brien says, as the first title of majesty, image emphasizes Christ's relation to God. And the term points to his revealing of the Father on the one hand and also his preexistence on the other. So it's revealing God the Father to us, but also that he's always been. It's both functional and ontological. Ontological is just a big word. It just means in relation of being. So in his essence, in his state of being, is he representing God or is he actually God? Ontologically, Jesus is God fully. That's what Paul is wanting us to see. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. Jesus it describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature so he is fully God he is the exact representation and the likeness for us in the invisible God as Philippians 2 says he he was found in the form of God notice um, notice that language I've already said this before because language in and of itself is finite it always grasps to try to fully explain to you who Jesus is and it can't because language in and of itself is, is hindered because it's language to describe the infinite to us. And so I'm trying to use as many verses and in many different ways to tell you that Jesus is 100% fully God f- before us in the flesh. Um, and this is something that Paul's definitely wanting to address. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, now we're going to start talking about the fact that man's made in the image of God. And if Jesus is the image of, God, of the invisible God and we're made in the image of God, then what does that mean? Uh, and how is it different? It's not the exact same. So man was made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And the difference would be that Jesus is the a- image of God in that he is the very essence of God. Man is made in the image of God. We're not God, but we have similarities in some capacities, but we also have massive differences. But we're made in the image of God too, which makes us distinct from all creation uh, and, and more important than anything else that's been created. Man is the supreme pinnacle of creation. All other things are good, and we love that they're here. You have your animals, you have trees, you have whatever, water. Everything's great, right? The Lord says that he created it good. But man is the pinnacle of all creation and the most important part of creation because we're made in the image of God and nothing else is. 
Colossians 2.9, when it's talking about Jesus, says, all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. And so he is 100% God. He is, uh, as it says, the image of the invisible God. Wayne Grudem describes it this way. Thus, thus far, I've read lots of texts and tried to give as much description as I can. He says all of these texts, because uh, I've, I've used most that he said, indicate that Jesus did not temporarily become man, but that his divine nature was permanently united with his human nature, and he lives forever, j- not just as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also as Jesus, the man who was born of Mary, and, and as Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of his people. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. And so before the incarnation, God the second person of the Trinity became man, and then that's when you have this uniting together of the 100% God, the 100% man, and now he lived, he died, and he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven, and he remains fully human. Before the incarnation, 100% God. Today, 100% God and 100% man in, in heaven reigning. He'll always be human now. Always be like us, or will always be like him. God, who was invisible, has now been made manifest to us in Jesus Christ. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, and he has made him known to us now. In the incarnation, he was now seen by man. Jesus is God in human flesh, and everything of God, everything of him, his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, everything is made known to us now in Christ. You know righteousness because you have seen it in Jesus. You know um, goodness because it has been made known to us in Jesus. You know what wisdom is because it has been made known to us in Jesus. You know what power is because it has been made known to us in Christ. Everything about God has been made known to us now in Christ. So as John Calvin warns then, we must beware of seeking Christ elsewhere for everything that would set itself up as a representation of God and not God himself apart from Christ is an idol. Everything. And so only Christ is where we're to put our focus and our hearts and our minds and all of our worship. Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. Now, Paul sets that up because as we go through all of his thoughts, we're going to see where as he builds these kind of building blocks of theology, Christology about who Christ is, it has massive implications on the Colossian heresy. But we have to start here. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, the first half of the verse represents Jesus's unique relationship to God the second half of the verse of 15 represents Jesus' unique relationship to creation. He's the image of the, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so the conclusion is that Jesus is the acting subject who extends God's creating activity to all the creatures now that, that are, have been created. That's, that's the extension that he's trying to help us see. He is God and that he's the firstborn of all creation. So when we say firstborn, you can go ahead and put up part B. What Paul is wanting us to see is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. Firstborn, this firstborn language, the ultimate thing that Paul is trying to teach us is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. Now, 
Firstborn over all creation has caused lots of heresies. Lots and lots and lots of heresies. Um, what does it mean when we say the firstborn of all creation? Arianism in the third century and today's Mormons and even Jehovah's Witnesses or Jehovah's Witnesses and even Mormons have this uh, wrong understanding and therefore creates the heresy. Jesus was born of a woman 2,000 years ago by Mary. Is that what firstborn's talking about? No, that's not what it's talking about. Because it says of all creation, was Jesus the firstborn thing in all created things whenever things started being created, when God started creating in Genesis 1? He was just the first, so he's, he's the first thing of all creation. No, that's not what it means. And if that is what it means, then that's heresy, because Jesus was created at some point, and if he was created at some point, he's not God. Anything that's ever been created is not God. God has to always exist forever. And so that's not what it means when we say he's the firstborn of all creation. Um, why does it say firstborn of all creation then? Um, this father-son relationship that's being described for us when we see firstborn is trying to help us understand the relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son and trying to help us understand exactly who Christ is. And so when we see this firstborn or we see this begetting of God the Father, we don't we should not take it necessarily as saying that Christ had a beginning point. That's not what Paul's trying to do. Instead, he's trying to help us see that Jesus is supreme over all creation. That's what he's trying to do. Why do you say that, Fudd? Firstborn to me means firstborn. Firstborn. All right, let's talk about it. Greek word, protokatos, is this firstborn. Protokatos. And so it can mean, it can mean firstborn chronologically. You know, my firstborn son in my house is Aiden. It can mean that he's the firstborn. Uh, but the better understanding, especially in this context in Colossians chapter 1, is not necessarily firstborn as much as it means first position or rank. First position or rank. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Psalm 89 verse 27 in the Psalms, uh, he's speaking of David. He says this uh, about David. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, it doesn't mean that he was firstborn and that he was, uh, no one else had ever been born king. Instead, he's saying, I'm going to make him the highest rank of all the kings of the earth. And this is what Paul's trying to say when he employs firstborn of all creation. Jesus wasn't created, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you can't be God if you're created. And so he doesn't mean that he was the firstborn uh, or first created. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created. There is a Greek word first created, prototokatissus, and Paul does not use that. He says prototokatos or prototokatos the firstborn of all creation. And so what he's trying to do here uh, is help us understand that Christ then is the highest or the most important of all the things uh, over all creation. Not that he was first created, but he is supreme in everything that's ever been created. Um, or anything that's ever been ever, that Jesus is supreme over all these things. He, he takes first position and first rank over these things. This, this Arian heresy uh, where Christ was created uh, resulted in the Nicene Creed being written in the 4th century uh, where Athanasius basically, well, the Holy Spirit for sure, Athanasius saved the day for, for Christendom. Uh, I wonder why I'm making this noise. Uh, 
Athanasius basically saved the day and the creed that was, came from that where it says this, Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father, begotten, not made, of one being, this homoousios, homoousios with the Father. And so what, we're trying, what Paul wants us to see is that he is firstborn or supreme over every single thing. So as the protokotos, or as the firstborn, O'Brien writes, Christ is unique, being distinguished from all creation, and he is both prior to and supreme over all the creation that's ever been made since he's Lord. So, second thing that he wants us to see is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. The first one is that uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The second one is that Jesus is supreme over all creation. Remember, all these things that he's doing are building a foundation to fight against the Colossian heresy, which we'll see. All right, which brings us into this. Remember, if Jesus is supreme over all creation and he is the very essence of God himself, then he does have the right to create. He does have the right to create. Um, if he's just the first created, then he's not the creator. So Paul's done all this for us to bring us to the point to where when he starts saying, Christ is the creator, uh, he's earned that right because he's always been God, which is where we come to this next one. Uh, go to verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created uh, through him. So number three, Jesus created all things. Jesus created all things. <clears throat> literally, because, in the Greek here, uh, where it says, for by him all things were created, literally it's because in him all things were created. Because in him all things were created. It's the haughty right there at the beginning. Not a gar where it says for. It's a haughty. Because in him all things were created. So all things were created by Jesus. Not only was Jesus present during creation. Jesus was the creator. When we see in Genesis 1.26. Then God said let us make man in our image. All that's in the plural right? All that's in the, in the plural. First person plural. Let us make image but God, like man in our image, this is Jesus saying to the Trinity, let us make men in our image. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, another chair text when it comes to Christology. You've got John 1, Hebrews 1, uh, Philippians 2, and Colossians 1. Those are the four kind of chair text or foundational texts about Christology. And another one, Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Christ isn't just present at creation, he is creating. And what did he create? Well, it says this right there in the text, right there in verse 16. He created heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things visible, all things invisible. And so through Christ, through him, all the divine work of creation has been accomplished. But don't miss this, okay? So in verse 13 and 14, through Christ, all the divine work of redemption has been accomplished. And not only that, all the divine work of creation has also taken its place in Christ, so why does Paul need to tell us that? Why does Paul need to tell us this? This is where we start getting touching into the Colossian heresy, 
And we can see what Paul's trying to do in the whole Christ hymn. It's a little complicated, but all of y'all are mega smart, and I know you can follow it. So here we go. I promise you got this. So the Colossian heretics started with the premise that all matter, all things created are evil. Anything material is evil. They would say, all things made are evil. So last week, whenever I said, therefore, you need to practice asceticism, asceticism is the renouncing of anything, like I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to have anything worldly in me, uh, so that God sees that I'm doing that, and he's really super proud of me, and he thinks that I'm awesome. Asceticism naturally follows this heresy, because if all matter is evil, and I'm not taking a part of food and anything made, then I'm rejecting made things, I'm rejecting evil things, God sees that, and he's super proud of me. That's why asceticism would follow as this heresy, and so... um, when we saw that, they thought things like that would please God, the rejection of anything material, because as they neglected evil creation around them, God would find that good. Good for you, you're, you're rejecting uh, cre- evil creation around you. Now, of course, this is wrong, and it directly contradicts Genesis chapter 1, when he made things, and he made things good, right? Everything is made, and it's made good. And so they believe since they view all things created, all things matter as evil, then God could not create these things because God who is pure and good would not create things that are evil. And so God didn't even do the creation. Something that came out of God, namely emanations that come out from who God is, uh, would, would be kind of lesser gods. And then from those emanations, even more down the chain, where those emanations are coming from, those things would be the things that would create because they're so far down away from God, it's fine for them to be able to do the creating, but not God himself. I mean, all this is just total heresy, total heresy, but this is what they believed. And so down the chain, down there farther from where Christ is, a lesser being, a lesser being is the one uh, where, that would do the creating. So not just, not God wouldn't do it, but an emanation from God, Jesus, even Jesus wouldn't create. But even further down, who are those lesser beings? Those are the ones that would create. And as they created, they would create matter, and all matter is evil. Now, this is clearly false, not according to Scripture at all. But Paul wants to refute the Colossian heretics and tell them, Jesus is God, and Jesus created all things. That's why he does those first two things in verse 15. So when we get here and he says, Jesus created all things. It's because he's wanting them to understand asceticism doesn't make you closer to God. You don't need that. You need Christ. Not only is he what you need, he's totally sufficient in and of himself in the good news. Um, And so uh, what he's trying to help them see here and refuting the Colossian heretics is that Jesus is God and Jesus created all things. Therefore, God can create matter. And it doesn't have to be inherently evil, the things that are created. We can enjoy all things created to some degree, right? And you can certainly enjoy it sinfully, but you can enjoy things that are created. And not only that, he wants you to. Because as you, whatever you eat or drink, you do it to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you give God glory. And so this is what he wants for us. Even more, Paul wants them to see the inconsistency of the Colossian heretics, that if Jesus isn't the creator, then he can't certainly be the redeemer. In verses 13 and 14, if The creator has to be then, therefore, intimately involved in creation in order to save us. If he's not the creator, he's just some kind of deistic being that's really far off, he's certainly not our redeemer. Um, 
God would have nothing to do with the material world, if that's true, and Jesus would not come and save us and enter the material world if it was always completely and inherently evil. And so then, therefore, we don't have a Redeemer at all because Jesus would have never come. And so Paul's addressing all this, wanting them to understand that the Creator is intimately involved in all of creation to save us. As F.F. Bruce says it this way, um, if you, well, this is just for fun. You can read F.F. Bruce and you can read O'Brien, and they sound very similar. One of them's a plagiarist. Uh, anyway, uh, so F.F. Bruce or maybe O'Brien, probably O'Brien didn't say it originally, F.F. Bruce did, but here's what F.F. Bruce said. Um, you can Google that. Uh, this is great. His mediatorial relation so in the fact that Christ is the mediator between God and man, his mediatorial relation to the created universe provides us a setting to the gospel of salvation. So because Christ is the mediator, not just in redemption, but also in creation, Christ is the one that, that creates God, Christ is the one in the mediator that redeems. And this position of, of him as mediator provides the setting in the gospel of salvation, which helps all the people appreciate the gospel even more, that Christ would enter that as fully God he would create, that he would create us, and he would enter into our world, become one of us, and save us by dying for us on the cross. And so Christ is, Jesus created all things. Now, there's another step to that, which we're going to see in number D. So um, if you look at verse 16, for by him all things were created, heaven and earth, invisible, invisible, or the thrones, dominions, rule, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And for him. D, Jesus created all things for himself. Jesus created all things for himself. C.S. Lewis, nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and of infinite majesty. I had to learn that in other ways, but nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. I read it again because C.S. Lewis is, you know, he's C.S. Lewis. What? This is what he said. Nature never taught me that there exists a God of glory and of infant majesty. I had to learn that in other ways, but nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. Nature gave the word glory a meaning for me. So when I see nature, I understand glory better, and because of that, I can understand God better. Um, O'Brien, Bruce, one of them, writes this. Christ is the goal of all creation and history itself. Everything is summed up in Christ. Christ is the goal of creation itself. So not only is he the creator, everything that's created is for the purpose of his glory. Everything has been created for him. Everything on earth is for him. It's not for you, it's not for me, ultimately, it's for him. And this is hard because as we look around creation, we can say, what a great creation God's made for us. Man, it's awesome. And in a sense, sure, ultimately, no. It's all for his glory. If we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Everything has made um, and been made so that he will be worshipped. You were made so that you would worship him. You're maybe one, as I already said, you're the pinnacle of all creation. Therefore, you were created to be a worshiper. All creation is made for him, and that's you and me. We're, we were created as part, as part of the creation to give worship to him. I went a long time in my life, a long time, way too long, to not know why I was put on earth. Uh, I was saved at eight, but it wasn't until... 20, 
2 or 23 that I actually knew why I was created. Um, I didn't know. The knowledge came to me much later in life, and I wish that even as a young, young teenager or even as a tweener, what are they called before teenagers? I don't know what they're called anymore. Uh, that someone had told me that life is not about my comforts and my glory, that someone had, would have told me later on than in my 20s that I've been created specifically for God's glory. That's why you've been created. Maybe you're just hearing that now. It's good if you're a young child to know you were created for God's glory. That's why he made you. He made you so that you would give glory to God. I did not know this early in life. And if you do know this at an early age, you've been given an amazing gift that he has opened your eyes in incredible ways that you don't take it for granted, you don't waste your life, and you focus on wanting to live a life giving him glory. Abraham Kuyper is kind of famous for this one saying, and it's really good. He says, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And just think of it this way. There's not one square inch in your entire body in which Christ doesn't say, mine and for my glory. We're created for his glory. You live every day for the glory of God. We're alive because of him. So what does Jesus' attributes have to do with me? The answer is this. He's keeping us alive at this very moment, and we don't have to draw another breath if he doesn't want us to. Our life that he's given to us and knowing that he's given us this life and every breath that we take is for his glory. With the flick of his finger, he could cause a tsunami to take over this entire state if he wanted to. And yet, we can be uh, fickle and play around with life like uh, life is really about us and whatever we want to do today or this week or this month. And that's not true. We were created ultimately for one purpose for his glory. And so, Christ is the mediator of all creation. And uh, being the mediator, he's creating all things for himself, for his glory. Now, um, verse 17 is where we're going to next. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, he's going to restate some of the concepts in verses 15 and 16, but in a slightly different way, and it's going to help us see a couple other attributes of Christ. Uh, he's going to discuss the preexistence and the cosmic significance of Christ. The preexistence that he's always been, and the cosmic significance. What does that mean when in relation to the world? Verse 17, he is before all things. Now, we've, we've hinted at this as we've been going through it, but let's just go say it outright. Number E, letter E, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. We hinted at this when we say that he was the protokotos, the, not the firstborn of, that he was created, but that he's supreme over all creation. But he is eternal. So this first clause where he says he is before all things is talking about Christ's relation in relation to time and the priority he has over all the universe and that he's outside of time because he's God. He's before all things. He is before all things. There was not anything that was made um, where uh, Christ didn't come before it. He's not uh, created at all. He's eternal. And this can become challenging for us to think about the eternality of God. It really messes with your head if you start thinking about it. For, for all right, everything before there was God, okay, then what was he doing? Like, what was going on at that particular time? 
it can really start messing with your head. Uh, there wasn't anything going on, it seems like, in my head. What was he doing? Uh, and so uh, if we start asking those kind of questions, I think we can miss the really big point, namely that God is the reason everything exists, and everything gets importance because God exists. So what was God doing in eternity past before creation? He was doing in eternity past before creation exactly what he's doing right now in eternity present and future, if that's how you say it. And that's namely what he's always done, enjoying the infinite value of his glory, perfectly in relationship with the Trinity, where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in perfect relationship with each other, um, and they were enjoying the infinite value of their own glory. Because, as we've already said in the previous one, everything's created for him, but it did not have to be created for the Lord to enjoy the infinite value of his glory. Creation didn't have to necessarily become something so that God could be glorious. God stands outside of all things as always glorious, whether things are created or not. Which means, since he didn't have to create, it even enhances our affections and our love and our admiration and our awestruckness that he would create and that he would make us to be able to enjoy into what he's already doing, namely enjoying him forever. He didn't create in order to receive more glory because he, there is no way that could happen. He created anyway and lets us take pleasure in his glory. And this is all possible because he is eternal. He's always been. As Revelation 1-4 says, um, grace and peace to you from uh, he who is, who was, and who is to come. Or as Revelation twenty two thirteen says, he's the Alpha and the Omega. And of course, that's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, trying to say he's always been and always will be. Jesus is eternal. And lastly, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, we've already talked about the fact that he's the creator, but he's not a deistic God where he kind of creates and sets it all up and lets it spin and then goes and does whatever he wants. That's not who he is. Number six, D, F, whatever it is. Jesus sustains all things. Jesus sustains all things. He holds them together continually. This is what he means. He's holding them, everything that he's created, he's always literally holding them together continually. He's got the whole world in his hands. We sang that as a child. As a child. He really does. He has the whole world in his hands. In other words, uh, one commentator says, that says it this way, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. O'Brien Bruce, one of them, says he's the sustainer of the universe and the unifying principle of its life. All things would disintegrate without Christ, continually holding all things together. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. Hebrews says it this way, of course. He upholds them by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. Um, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's continually holding together all things by the word of his power. All the power that was used to create is now continually used to uphold the universe, and it gives us an amazing picture of the vastness and greatness of Jesus. Now remember, He's doing it by the word of his power, namely saying, stay there. All the universe and all the galaxies are obeying him at every single moment because Jesus says, stay right there. I mean, I was reading some commentaries. I didn't write this down. Like literally if our, if our earth 
rotated on a small axis, just any kind of way, we'd freeze to death or burn up to death at any moment. Like, we're, we're all, I was, it's crazy, I couldn't put it all down. Like, everything that's going on with us in regard to Earth relation to the sun, at, if anything, to the smallest degree was changed, we're done. And he's holding it all up by the word of his power. Um, Douglas Moo says, without him, electrons would not continue to circle the nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. He is sustaining all the galaxies and every galaxy that exists. And don't miss this. And he's sustaining you. If he's doing all that, he's also totally capable and powerful enough to sustain you in everything that's going on in your life. You are infinitely smaller than all of those things that he's holding up by the word of his power. You should take comfort in this. Nothing is too difficult for him. He is able to keep everything going and to keep us alive at every single moment. Jesus is doing that for you right now, keeping you alive. And if he can do all that, everything that's happening in your life doesn't come close to overwhelming him. He didn't just create you and make you exist by yourself. He sustains you and me with every breath we draw at every second. And even those that don't acknowledge this ultimately are actually totally dependent on him for every breath, even if they don't recognize it. So then what do you do? What does all that mean? It means you worship. That's what it means. I couldn't write a better conclusion than David Garland does in this little application section he has in this section. And so I'm just going to read the small little sections to you. It's pretty, pretty amazing. He says this, when he's talking about the Christ hymn, he says, this poem shimmers in the exultant celebration of Christ's creative and redemptive work. It praises who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. It forms the basis of Paul's intercession and instruction to the letter, which is filled with exhortations to be thankful. Unfortunately, we've become less skillful singers of praise to God and Christ and may even, how, may even have forgotten how to speak the language of adoration. Sometimes, because of life, we, uh, it's not talking about that you actually sing in key. He's saying that you live a life of adoration. We've become less skillful at living lives of speaking the, lation, uh, the, the language of adoration. Those who have lost an immediate sense of God's presence and glory tend to turn to God and to an object of study and the subject of theories instead of praise and adoration. Not down-talking study, right? Study. Study for a purpose that our hearts would want to go to, praise and adoration. Schweizer argues that God is not an object that we take into our hands in order to analyze and describe it exactly. God is always God in action, and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus specifies this as an action of love. This love in action for us and all the world should evoke amazement, our awe, and our praise. The point of the Christ hymn is that we become greater praisers of him, greater adorers of him. Miller writes that doxology celebrates human impossibilities that became God's possibilities. Doxology, we worship and we celebrate what we could not do because God is capable of doing it. That's what he's telling us. 
in a world that assumes the status is quo, that things have to be the way they are, and that we must not assume too much about improving them, the doxologies or the worshipings of God's people are fundamental indicators that wonders have not ceased, that possibilities not yet dreamt of what will happen, and that hope is not an authentic stance. Being able to voice such praise to Christ is a sign of a secure and deeply rooted faith. Being able to voice praise to Christ is a sign and a secure, of a secure and deeply rooted faith. The more we worship, the more obviously deeply rooted we are to Christ. We exult because we know that we do not live in a God-indifferent world. We also exult because we know that we have nothing to fear. God is with us through Christ and will deliver us in Christ. We need to cultivate more the spirit of praise uh, that we see in the psalmists, like Psalm 8, 9, uh, 19, 33, 104, and the New Testament poet, poetic praise that glorifies Christ. That's the point of the Christ hymn. It's meant to lead to adoration. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. And I pray for us all, including myself, that as we have studied who Christ is, and as next week as we look more at this Christ hymn, that it leads us to adoration and praise. That you would use um, this word to not just give us information about Jesus, but it would be information that uh, surpasses knowledge, that draws us into want to love Christ more, to know the love of Christ more, and to fill us with all the fullness of God so that we would live lives of adoration and worship. We can't do this without you. We acknowledge that and we confess that. And so even the worship that we give to you is first a gift from you to us so that we give it back to you. We acknowledge that, Lord. Would you be so gracious, Lord, to bring this about in our lives. We praise you. We love you for your kindness and your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.